42. B. Thou, faithless maiden, wouldst deceive me. Take back this written pledge of love. No more I'll to my bosom fold it, the ring you gave, your faith to prove. I can't return because I've sold it. I will not ask thee to restore each gauge tumor, or lover's token, which I had given thee before the links between us had been broken. They were not much. But oh, that brooch, if for my sake who's deign to save it, for that, at least, I must encroach. It wasn't mine, although I gave it, the gem that in my breast I wore, that once belonged unto your mother which, when you gave to me, I swore for life I'd love you, and no other. Can you forget that cheerful morn, when in my breast thou first didst stick it? I can't restore it it's in pawn, but, base deceiver that's the ticket. Oh, take back all. I cannot bear these proofs of love they seem to mock it, there, false one, take your lock of hair nay, do not ask me for the locket, insidious girl, that wily tear is useless now, that all is ended, there is thy curl nay, do not sneer, the locket somewhere being mended, the dressing case you lately gave was dipped, I know, for Baghdad's caliph, I used it only once to shave, when it was taken by the bailiff, then thou didst give I bring back less, but hear the truth, without more dodging the landlord's bin with a distress, and positively cleared my lodging, cons, my ocelananiel, what English word expresses the Latin for cold, jelly, does gilidus, why is a black leg called a sharper, because he's less blunt than other men, why is a red herring like a Macintosh, because it keeps one dry all day, punches theater, old maids, Sir Philip Brilliant is a gentleman of exquisite breeding a man of fashion, with a taste for finery, and somewhat of a thop, he reveals his pretty figure to us, arrayed in all the glories of white and pink satins, embellished with flaunting ribbons, and adorned with costly jewels, his servant is performing the part of mirror, by explaining the beauties of the dress, and trying to discover its faults, his researches for flaws are unavailing, till his master promises him a crown if he can find one nine valets out of ten would make a misfit for half the money, and Robert instantly pays a tribute to the title of the play by discovering a wrinkle equally on emblem of an old maid, and an ill-fitting vest. This incident shows us that Sir Philip is an amateur in dress, but his predilection is further developed by his exit, which is made to scold his goldsmith for the careless setting of a lost diamond. The next scene takes us to the other side of Temple Bar, in fact, upon Luckgate Hill. We are inside the shop of the goldsmith, Master Blount most likely the founder of the firm now conducted by Masros, Rundell and Bridge. He has two sons, who, being brought up to the same trade, and always living together, are, of course, eternally quarreling. Both had a violent desire to cut the shop, the younger for glory, ambition, and all that after the fashion of all city juveniles, who hate hard work, the elder for ease and elegance. The papa and mama had a slight altercation on the subject of their sons which happily, for family quarrels seldom amuse third parties is put an end to by a second, shine, brought about by the entrance of Sir Philip Brilliant, to make the threatened complaint about bad workmanship, the younger and fiery Thomas Blount resents some of Sir PBS expressions to his father, this is followed by the usual badinage about swords and their use, we make up our minds that the next scene is to consist of a duel, and are not disappointed, sure enough a little rapier practice ends the act, the shopman is wounded, and his adversary takes the usual oath of being his sworn friend forever. The second act introduces a new class of incidents. A great revolution has taken place in the private concerns of the family Blount. Thomas, the younger, has become a colonel in the army, 
John, having got possession of the shop, has sold the stock in trade, fixtures, goodwill, and C. Doubtless, to the late Mr. Rundell's great-grandfather, and has set up for a private gentleman. For his introduction into genteel society he is indebted to Robert, whom he has mistaken for a baronet, and who presents him to several of his fellow knights of the shoulder knot, all dubbed, for the occasion, lords and ladies, exactly as it happens in the farce of high life below stairs, but where are the old maids all this time, where, indeed, Lady Blanche and Lady Anne are young and beautiful exquisitely lovely, for they are played by Madame Vestries and Mrs. Nisbet, it is clear, then, that directly they appear, the spectator assures himself that they are not the old maids, to be sure they seem to have taken a sort of vow of celibacy, but their fascinating looks their beauty their enchanting manners, offer a challenge to the whole bachelor world, that would make the keeping of such a vow a crime next to sacrilege, one does not tremble long on that account, Lady Blanche, has, we are informed, taken to disguising herself, and some time since, while rambling about in the character of a yeoman's daughter, she entered Blount's shop, and fell in love with Thomas, at this exact part of the narrative Colonel Blount is announced, attended by his sworn friend, Sir Philip Brilliant, a sort of partial recognition takes place, which leaves the audience in a dreadful state of suspense till the commencement of another act, Sir Philip, who has formerly loved Lady Blanche without success, now tries his fortune with Lady Anne, and at this point, dramatic invention ends, for, excepting the mock marriage of John Blount with a lady's maid, the rest of the play is occupied by the vicissitudes the two pair of lovers go through all of their own contrivance, on purpose to make themselves as wretched as possible till the grand clearing up, which always takes place in every last scene, from the Adelphi of Terence or Yates, down to the old maids of Mr. Sheridan Knowles, Cio Cio Aricio, O are my aunt's bandum, since playwrights have left off plotting and underplotting on their own account, and depend almost entirely upon the French. Managers have added a new member to their establishments, and, like the morning papers, employ a Paris correspondent, that French plays, as well as French eggs, may be brought over quite fresh, though from the slovenly manner in which they the pieces, not the eggs are too often prepared for the English market, they are seldom neat as imported. The gentleman who does the Parisian correspondence for the Adelphi Theatre, has supplied it with a vaudeville bearing the above title, The Fable, of which, like some of Aesop's, principally concerns a hen, that, however, does not speak, and a smart coxcone who does an innocent little fair who has charge of the foul a sort of Justice Woodcock, and a bombardier who, because he is in the uniform of a drum or bugle major, calls himself a sergeant, to these may be added, Mr. Yates in his own private character, and a few sibilants in the pit, who completed the poultry nature of the piece by playing the part of geese, the plot would have been without interest, but for the accidental introduction of the last two characters, or the geese and the cock of the walk, the pentites, affront at the extreme puerility of some of the incidents, and the inanity of all the dialogue, hissed, this raffled the feathers of the cock of the walk, who was already on, or rather at, the wing, and he flew upon the stage in a tantrum, to silence the geese, Mr. Yates spoke we need not say how or what, everybody knows how he of the Adelphi shrugs his shoulders, and squeezes his hat, and smiles, and frowns, and appeals, and declares upon his honor, while agitating the buttons on the left side of his coat, and entreats, and throws himself upon the candor of a British public, and puts the stamp upon all he has said by an impressive thump of the foot, 
a final flourish of the arms, and a triumphal exit to Puan sounding, bravos, and to the utter confusion of all these or to be more correct, his sentience, in the end, however, the latter triumphed, and Kokoriko deserved its fate in spite of the actors, Mrs. Grant played the chief character with much tact and cleverness, singing the vaudevilles charmingly a most difficult task, we should say, on account of the adapter, in putting English words to French music, having ignorantly mis accentuated a large majority of them, Miss Terry infused into a simple country girl a degree of character which shows that she has not yet fallen into the vampire trap of too many young performers stage conventionalism, and that she copies from nature, it is unfortunate for both these clever actresses that they have been thrust into a piece, which not even their talents could save from partial, but it is a naughty word, and Mrs. Judy has grown very strict, the piece wants curtailment, which, if previously applied, will increase the interest, and make it, perhaps, an endurable dramatic promenade concerts, the conductor of these concerts has not a single requisite for his office he is several degrees less personable than M. Joy and he does not even wear mustaches, and to suppose that a man can beat time properly without them is ridiculous, he looks a great deal more like a modest, respectable grocer, than a man of genius, for he neither turns up his eyes nor his cuffs, and has the indecency to appear without white gloves, his manners, too, are an insult to the lovers of the thunder and lightning school of music, he neither conducts himself, nor his band, with the least grace or eclat, he does not spread out both arms like a goose that wants to fly, while hushing down a diminuendo, nor gesticulate like a madman during the fortes, in short, he only gives out the time in passages where the players threaten in steadiness, and as that is very seldom, those amateurs who pay their money only for the pleasure of seeing the baton flourished about, are defrauded of half their amusement, Amusard takes them in for it must be evident, even to them, that what we have said is true, and that he possesses scarcely a qualification for the office he holds if we make one trifling exception hardly worth mentioning for he is nothing more than, merely, a first-rate musician, with a single accomplishment, it is like his impudence to try and foist himself upon the Cockney dilettante after Enjoyan, who possessed every other requisite for a conductor but a knowledge of the science, which island after all, a paltry acquirement, and purely mechanical, on the evening punch was present, the usual dose of quadrilles and waltzes was administered, with an admixture from the dull scores of Beethoven, disgusted as we were at the humbug of performing the works of this master without blue fire, and an artificial storm in the flies, yet may we confess it, we were nearly as much charmed by the Andante from his Symphonia in A as if the lights had been put out to give it effect, we blush for our taste, but thank our stars Joyan included that we had the courage to own the soft impeachment in the face of an enlightened concert de Patronis in public, in sober truth, we were ravished, the pianos of this movement were so exquisitely kept, the ensemble of them was so complete, the wind instruments were blown so exactly in tune, so evenly in tone, that the whole passion of that touching Andante seemed to be felt by the entire band, which went as one instrument, the subject breaking in as it does, when least expected, and worked about through nearly every part of the score, so as to produce the most delicious effects was played with equal delicacy and feeling by every performer who had to take it up, while the undercurrent of accompaniment was made to blend with it with a masterly command and unanimity of tone, that we cannot remember to have heard equaled, of course, this piece, though it enchanted the musical part of the audience, disgusted the promenaders, and was received but coldly, this, however, 
was made up for when the drumming, smashing, and brass blurting of the overture to Zampa was noised forth, this was encored with ecstasies, and so were some of the quadrilles, happy musical taste, Beethoven's Septur, arranged as a set of quadrilles, is a desecration and worthy of Musard, for this piece of bad taste he ought to be condemned to arrange the sailor's hornpipe, as the war with China, the celebrated pranks of the bull in the China shop are likely to be repeated on a grand scale the part of the bull being undertaken, on this occasion, by the illustrious John who was at the head of the family, the emperor, when the last advices left, was discussing a chop, surrounded by all his ministers, the chop, which was dished up with a good deal of Chinese sauce, was ultimately forwarded to Elliot, the custom of sending chops to an enemy is founded on the idea, that the fact of there being a bone to pick cannot be conveyed with more delicacy than by wrapping it up, as it is commonly termed, as politely as possible. Our readers will be surprised to hear that the Chinese had attacked our forces with junk, from which it has been supposed that our brave chars had been pitched into a with large pieces of salt beef, while the English commanders have been pelted with chops, but this is an error. The thing called junk is not the article of that name used in the Royal Navy, but a gym crack attempt at a vessel, built principally of that sort of material, something between wood and paper, of which we in this country manufacture hat boxes. The emperor is such a devil of a fellow, that those about him are afraid to tell him the truth, and though his troops have been most unmercifully walloped, he has been humbugged into the belief that they have achieved a victory. A poor devil named Kishin, who happened to suggest the necessity for a stronger force, was instantly split up by order of the emperor, who can now and then do things by halves, though such is not his ordinary custom. We have sent out a correspondent of our own to China who will supply us with the earliest intelligence, to benevolent and humane jokers, case of extreme jocular distress, the sympathies of a charitable and witty public are earnestly solicited in behalf of John Wilson C.R.O. Care, Esquire late secretary to the Admiralty, author of the, New Wood Guide, and C, and C, who, from having been considered one of the first wits of his day, is now reduced to a state of unforeseen comic indigence, it is earnestly hoped that this appeal will not be made in vain, and that, by the liberal contributions of the facetious, he will be restored to his former affluence in jokes, and that by such means he may be able to continue his contributions to the quarterly review, which have been recently refused from their utter dullness. Contributions will be thankfully received at the punch office, by the Han, and Ref, Baptist Noel, Rogers, Togood, and Company, at the House of Commons, and the Garrick's Head, subscriptions already received. Samuel Rogers, Esquire 10 Guns, and a copy of, Italy, Tom Cook, Esquire, one joke musical, consisting of, God Save the Queen, arranged for the penny trumpet, Teehood, Esquire 23 epigrams, Han, and Ref, Baptist Noel, a laughable cornwall pamphlet, John Poole, Esquire, a new farce, with liberty to extract all the jokes from the same, amounting due to Judespri and a pun, proprietors of punch. The copy for number 15 of the London CHARIVARI, containing 1700 sentences, and therefore as many jests. Call, Sithorpe, a conundrum, Daniel O'Connell, an Irish tale, Masros, Gristle and Petu, a strike in Masonic interlude, called, The Stonemasons at a Standstill, or, The Rusty Trowel, Commissioner Lynn, a special edict, Lord John Russell, a new guide to matrimony, and a facetious essay called, How to Alleve One's Lodgings, Laurie's Essay on the Pharmacopoeia, 
Sir Pilori begs to inquire of the medical student, whose physiology is recorded in Punch, in what part of the country farmer Kapoidia resides, and whether he is for or against the corn laws. Punch. O.R. The London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume 1. For the week ending October 23, 1841. The Great Creature. Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Inquisitor Young Man. A thin young man. A pale young man. And, as some of his friends asserted, a decidedly not need young man. Moreover he was a young man belonging to and connected with the highly respectable firm of Masros, Tims and Swindle, attorneys and bill discounters, of Thavise in Holborn, from the which highly respectable firm Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink received a salary of one pound one shilling per week, in requital for his manifold services. The vocation in which Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink labored partook peculiarly of the peripatetic, for at all sorts of hours, and through all sorts of streets was Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink daily accustomed to transport his anatomy presenting overdue bills, inquiring after absent acceptors, invisible indersers, and departed drawers, for his masters, and wearing out, as he Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink eloquently expressed it, no end of boots for himself. Such was the occupation by which Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink lived, but such was not the peculiar path to fame for which his soul longed. No, he had seen plays, and longed to blaze upon the stage a star of light, that portion of time which was facetiously called by Masros, Tims and Swindle, the leisure of Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink, being some eight hours out of the twenty-four, was spent in poring over the glorious pages of the immortal bard, and in the desperate enthusiasm of his heated genius would he, Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink, suddenly burst forth in some of the most exciting passages, and with stentorian lungs, render night hideous, to the startled inhabitant of the one pair bath, adjoining the receptacle of his own truckle bed and mortal frame, luck, whether good or evil, began Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink an introduction to some other talent young gentleman, who had so far progressed in histrionic acquirements, that from spouting themselves, they had taken to spouting their watches, and other stray articles of small value, to enable them to pay the charges of a private theatre, where, as often as they could raise the needful, they astonished and delighted their wondering friends. Among this worshipful society was Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink adopted and enrolled as a trusty and well-beloved member, and in the above-named private theatre, in suit of solemn black, slightly relieved by an enormous white handkerchief, and a well-chalked countenance, did Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink that or about the hour of half-past eight being precisely sixty minutes behind the period announced, in consequence of the non-arrival of the one fiddle and ditto flute comprising, or rather that ought to have comprised, the orchestra made his debut, and a particularly nervous bow to the good folks there assembled, as and for, the character, of Hamlet, the Danish prince, to describe the, exclamations of delight, the, tornadoes of applause, the earthquakes of rapture, or the breathless breathing of the entranced audience, would beat Mr. Bunn into fifths, and the German company into fiddle cases, so, like a newspaper legacy, which is the only one that never pays duty, we leave it to our reader's imagination, the die was cast, Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink's former avocations became intensely irksome if he served a writ it was no longer a writ of right, copies for Jenkins were consigned to Tompkins, Brown declined pleading to Smith and Smith declared off Brown's declaration. In inquiries after solvent acceptors, Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink was still more abroad, 
in the mystification of his brains, all answers seemed to be delivered, per contra, forlorn hopes on three and six penny stamps were converted into the circulating medium, good actors, were considered, good men, in the very reverse of Shylock's acceptation of the term, and astonished indicers succeeded in, raising the wind, upon, kites, they would have bet any odds no, wind in the world, could induce to fly, everything in this world must come to an end bills generally do in three months, so did these, and so did Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps thinks responsible and peripatetic avocations in the highly respectable firm of Masros, Tims and Swindle, attorneys, and to their cost, through the agency of Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink, bill discounters, of the Vise in Holborn, Bay, the said highly respectable firm of Tims and Swindle, handing over to Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink the sum of four and tenpence, being the balance of his quarter's salary, which, so great was Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink's opinion of the solvency of the said highly respectable firm, he had allowed to remain and drawn in their hands, together with a note utterly and totally declining any further service or assistance as, in, or, outdoor, or any sort of clerk at all, from Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink, and amiably recommending the said Horatio to apply elsewhere for a character, the which advice Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink attended to instanter, and received, in consideration of the sum of thirty shillings, that of, Richard III, from the dramatic committee of Catherine Street, if Hamlet was good, Richard among the amateurs was better, and if Richard was better, Shylock at, one five, was best, and Romeo and all the rest better still, and it may be worthy of remark, that there is no person on earth looked upon by admiring managers as more certain of success than the, promising young man who pays for his parts. Now it so happened that Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink's purse became an exceedingly, Yago, like, something, nothing, trashy, sort of affair in other words, that its owner, Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink, was regularly stumped, and as the amateur dramatic theatrical committee, always go upon the no-pay-no-play system, Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink was about to incur the fate of Lord John Russell's tragedy, and become regularly, shelved, in this dilemma Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink addressed all sorts of letters to all sorts of managers, offering himself for all sorts of salaries, to play the best of all sorts of business, but never received any sort of answer from one of them, returning to his solitary lodging, after a fortnight's, half and half, of patience and despair, and just as despair was walking poor patience to old Harry, Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink encountered one of his histrionic acquaintance, who did the three and sixpenny walking gents, and dramatic general postmen, or letter deliverers, that, the private, in the course of the enlightened conversation between the said friend, Mr. Julius Tilbury Pips, and Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink, Julius Tilbury Pips expressed an earnest wish that he, might be blowed considerably tighter than the Vauxhall balloon if ever he see such a likeness of Mr. Hannibal Phipps Flummery Fitz Flam, the, great actor of the day, as his, bosom and intimate, Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink, a nervous pressure of Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink's pickers and stealers, having nearly reduced to a one vast chaos the severely compressed digits of the enthusiastic Julius Tilbury Pips, the invisible green broadcloth envelopments and drab lower encasements, crowned with gossamer and based with calfskin, wherein the total outward man of Mr. Horatio Phipps Harding Phipps Fink was enrobbed, together with his ambulating anatomy. Evanished from the startled gaze of the deserted and finger-contused Julius Tilbury Pips, having asserted the entire real on of his hastily formed wish, in the emphatic words, Well, I am blowed, 
and a further comment, stating his conviction that this was Ray for a rummy go. Mr. Julius Tilbury Pitts reduced his exchequer the gross amount of threepence, paid in consideration of the instant receipt of a pint of porter and screw, to the fumigation of which he applied with such excessive vigor, that in a few moments he might be said, by his own exertions in blowing a cloud, to be corporeally as well as mentally in Nubigus, to account for the rapid departure of Mr. Horatio Fitz Harding Fitzfink. We must inform our readers the supposed similarity alluded to by Julius Tilbury Pips, between the great creature, Hannibal Fitz Flummery Fitz Flam, and Horatio Fitz Harding Fitzfink, had been before frequently insisted upon, and this assertion of the obtuse Julius Tilbury Pips now seemed confirmation strong as proof of holy writ. Agitated with conflicting emotions, and regardless of small children and apple stalls, Mr. Horatio Fitz Harding Fitzfink rushed on with headlong speed every now and then ejaculating, I'll do it, I'll do it. A sudden overhauling of his pockets produced some stray apence, master of a queen's head, a sheet of vellum, a new mordant, and an envelope. Mr. Horatio Fitz Harding Fitzfink, arrived at his three-pair bath, indeed in an epistle to the manager at the town of, with extraordinary haste signed the document, and, in the hurry of the moment, left the inscription thus H.S.F.I.D.S.E.F.L.A.M. The morrow's post brought an answer, the terms were acceded to, the night appointed for his opening, and Mr. Horatio Fitz Harding Fitzfink found, upon inspecting the proof of the playbill, the name in full of Mr. Hannibal Fitz Flummery Fitz Flam, the great tragedian of the day. Pass we over the intervening space, and at once come to the momentous morning of rehearsal. The expected Roshus arrived like punctuality's self, at the appointed minute, was duly received by the company who had previously been canvassing his merits, and assuring each other that all stars were must, but Fitzflam one of the most impudent impostors that ever moved, I sir, said the leader of the discontented fifteen shillings a week when they could get it squad, I have been in the profession more years than this fellow has months, and he is getting hundreds where I am neglected, never mind, only give me a chance, and I'll show him up, but I suppose the management pretty management, to engage such a chap when I'm here I suppose they will truckle to him, and send me on, as usual, for some wretched old bloke there's no getting a hand in John Campbell himself and I'm told I'm in his style, I say, John Campbell, my prototype, the now immortal John, never got applause in blokes, but never mind, as a genealogist would say, Fitz the son of Funk, never more truly represented his ancestral cognomen than on this trying occasion, he was no longer with amateurs, but regulars, fellows that could talk and get on somehow, that were never known to stick in Richard, when they remembered a speech from George Barnwell, men with swallows, like Thames Tunnels, in fact, accomplished baggers and enrivaled wing-watchers, however, as Mr. Horatio Fitz Harding Fitzfink spoke to none of them, crossed where he liked, cut out most of their best speeches, and turned all their backs to the audience, he passed muster exceedingly well and acted the genuine star with considerable effect, so it was at night, some folks objected to his knees, to be sure, but then they were silenced, what, Fitzflam's knees bad, nonsense, Fitzflam is the thing in London, and do you think Fitzflam ought to be decried in the provinces, hasn't he been lithographed by Lane, pooh, impudence, spite, the great name made Mr. Horatio Fitzharding Fitzfink, the great man, and all went swimmingly, on the last night of his engagement, the night devoted to his benefit, the house was crammed, and Mr. Horatio Fitzharding Fitzfink, 
reflecting that all was cocksure, as he should pocket the proceeds and return to London and discovered, was elevated to Mahomet's seventh heaven of happiness, awaiting with impatience the prompter's whistle and the raising of the curtain, where for a time we will leave him, and attend upon the real, Simon Pure, the genuine and old original Hannibal Fitzflummery Fitzflam, to be continued, Adiari Angle. Sir R. Peel has been recently so successful in fishing for adherents, that, since bobbing so cleverly for Walkley, he has baited his hook afresh, and intends to start for Minto House forthwith, having his eye upon a certain small fish that is ever seen rustle in among the sedges in troubled waters. We trust Sir Bob will succeed this time in Punch's commission to inquire into the general distress. I copy of a letter from the Under Secretary of State to Punch, Downing Street, Sir. Knowing that you are everywhere, the Secretary of State has desired me to request you will inquire into the alleged distress, and particularly into the fact of people who it is alleged are so unreasonable in their expectations of food, as to die because they cannot get any. I had the honor to be, and see, H-O-R-A-D-I-O-F-I-D-Z-Spoonie-I-I, copy of Punch's letter to the Under Secretary of State, sir. I have received your note. I am everywhere, but as everything is gay when I make my appearance. I have not seen much of the distress you speak of. I shall, however, make it my business to look the subject up, and will convey my report to the government. I think it no honor to be yours, and see dot, but I had the very great honor to be myself without any and see. Punch, in compliance with the above correspondence, Punch proceeded to make the necessary inquiries, and very soon was enabled to forward the following report on the public distress. To Her Majesty's Secretary of State for the Home Department, Sir. In compliance with my undertaking to inquire into the public distress, I went into the manufacturing districts, where I had heard that several families were living in one room with nothing to eat, and no bed to lie upon. Now, though it is true that there are in some places as many as 30 people in one apartment, I do not think their case very distressing, because, at all events, they had the advantage of society which could not be the case if they were residing in separate apartments. It is clear that their living together must be a matter of choice, because I found in the same town several extensive mansions inhabited by one or two people and a few servants, and there are also some hundreds of hoe.